0: This shortcode podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com.
1: Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Shortcode Podcast.
2: Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues and interviews, by students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com.
0: Welcome back to the Shortcode Podcast. I'm Dave Etler. That is among the least interesting things you're going to hear today on our show. But far more intriguing are my co-hosts. A big Iowa welcome back to Kylie Miller. Thanks. What does that mean, a big Iowa welcome?
1: iowa nice i don't know no one's honking at me or giving me the finger in traffic
0: there you go Tarek karam is hey, here hey everyone corbin weaver has joined us hi there and while you might think that it's uh, just that, that that's it as far as talented people we do have one more person joining us because dr shannon Finlay is here dr Finlay is a emergency medicine resident in her third year Here at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. And she is also a graduate of the Carver College of Medicine. Uh, She's here to talk to us today about human trafficking and what physicians need to know and watch for. Welcome to the show, Dr. Finley.
2: Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Uh,
0: Before we begin, I would like to invite our friends on Facebook Live to uh, ask their own questions. Get in on the action today.
3: And look at the back of my head. Look at the back
0: of Corbin's awesome head. Very nice. It's pretty I think you'll agree.
4: Every once in a while, nice you can side. turn around and say hi. It's cameras right there. Yeah,
0: you can go. You can do that. So uh, just comment uh, below, and we'll do our best to answer your questions and uh, address your comments. Dr. Finley, let's start by defining the human trafficking problem because I think that um, the purposes for which people are, are enslaved are more varied than perhaps some might think.
2: Sure, this is a really great question, and it's a really tough question because this population is very difficult to identify. So human trafficking encompasses two main areas, which include sex trafficking and labor trafficking. I think the media has done a good job of kind of illuminating different types of people who are affected by sex trafficking. Labor trafficking, on the other hand, is still largely underrepresented. What trafficking is, is people who have been asked, pushed to do things that are not what they want to do against their will. For example, working in sex work or working in jobs, um, agricultural, domestic work, hotels, against what they originally thought the plan would be, whether it was the amount of money, the amount of hours, whether or not there are other issues such as immigration, which can complicate things if people's documents are not their own, so it's a really tough question to look at. How do we define human trafficking?
0: I think one of the that definition would then include things like you know if you hired somebody to work in your house and, and you you know took their passport away from them or otherwise coerced them to remain in your employ, even if basically remove their choice of working for you or or do. I mean, that's another.
2: Yeah, that's another definition. You mentioned labor trafficking. Yep, labor trafficking. They call it domestic servitude. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's one of the bigger areas in the US where people fall into labor trafficking. And oftentimes it will involve uh, loss of the documents. So about 71% of labor trafficking victims actually have legal documents. They just may not possess them or be worried about immigration. They may not have the ability to reach out to others who can help them either in the community like law enforcement, social services, cause they just don't know how to get in touch with those resources and they may not have any other support, family support, friend support that can help them.
0: Mm. Mm. Can you give us some idea of the scope of the problem? I mean, how big is this issue?
2: So when you look at kind of worldwide, that's the best numbers we have is about, they think about 21 million people are affected worldwide by human trafficking. And that includes both labor and sex trafficking. In the U.S., they think about 18,000 people are trafficked into the U.S. every year. The numbers about domestically who is coming from the U.S. and staying within the U.S., it's a little bit harder to identify, and I haven't seen any really great numbers on what that looks like. The um, Polaris Project, or the Human Trafficking Resource Center, they have been tracking calls in of suspected cases, which can be by healthcare providers, law enforcement, community members, or victims themselves. And last year, they identified probably about 5,000 individuals. This was both American citizens and immigrants. It was mostly uh, US citizens that were identified. Now, there could be a bias in who we are identifying. And so it's hard to know what the statistics really mean. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm interested. So you mentioned healthcare workers are, you know, some of the reporters that are ca- kind of taking documentation of human trafficking, suspected human trafficking um, victims. Oftentimes, we're seeing them in the ER or in clinics, and. Catching kind of at the end, what are some ways, um, I know I'm kind of jumping ahead here, I feel like, but what are some ways that healthcare providers can be um, a bigger part of the advocacy and outspeaking against human trafficking rather than just intercepting people who've already been mistreated?
2: Sure. So I think part of it is just education and awareness within the community. Often the community looks to healthcare providers as people who are on the leading edge of what healthcare issues we need to look at and public health issues. So I didn't think just being out there advocating for the community, having resources available, because that's also a very big issue right now, is so we have started to identify more victims of human trafficking, but we don't have the resources available. To get resources, you need funding, grant money, and that takes a lot of work with law enforcement, legislation, policy in your community, and so really, kind of heading up some of those networks and trying to build a strong community which takes so many different groups to get involved is kind of where I think healthcare providers can be leaders in this.
3: What are some I guess some barriers that you see to one, healthcare providers, like you said, being able to, you know, move, take that next step besides just, you know, suspecting and realizing, oh, this might be um, you know, a victim of trafficking, what what are some barriers to that next step actually happening?
2: So for healthcare providers, I think time mm-hmm. is always the biggest issue because we have so much pressure and so many obligations in other areas that just having enough time to get mm-hmm. involved in other activities can be probably the biggest barrier. The second one is really, um, until recently, medical students, healthcare providers, social workers, law enforcement, they weren't learning about human trafficking and even knowing how to identify. So there's still a great need even to educate um, the community and all the different social groups that are involved in identif- identifying patients and victims. That That's also just a really huge need right now.
3: Mm-hmm. What are some things, I guess, that you teach a look at how far I'm thinking of in the context of, When we're trained, for instance, to look out for child abuse, you know, Mm -hmm. there are certain things, you know, um, we look for certain fractures, certain, you know, injuries that don't add up to the history. What are some things that you look for for victims of trafficking? So
2: in victims of trafficking, I think we can look back to what we have learned with child abuse and domestic abuse to help guide us in those things. Because a lot of times you get or you meet someone, and the story doesn't quite add up. And you're kind of thinking, gee, something's off. And that's when you can really start to ask more questions about safety. Is it at home, in the school? Is it at their work environment? Really open-ended questions to try to figure out what their life is like. How is it when you go home? Who lives with you? Do you feel comfortable at home? How is your job going? How did you end up in your job? Can you leave your job if you want to? There's all sorts of questions that you can get at that isn't actually asking, are you a victim of human trafficking? Because mm-hmm. most people, they have no idea what that means. Even mm-hmm. in the community, even those who are well-educated and who uh, um, are up-to-date on public issues, a lot of times this issue is hard to know who are victims of human trafficking. So we can't expect those who are victims to know and to identify as a victim of human trafficking.
0: So so what do you see, though, as a as a physician? What is, what is it that you see that might, aside from asking questions, what might, what might make you start asking those questions in the ER say?
2: So I think anytime anybody comes in and they have injuries that are, you suspect are abuse and sometimes that just involves a history of kind of unusual injuries, Mm -hmm. you know, black eyes, facial injuries, broken bones, injuries that look like, um, burn marks from cigarettes, or something that looks like a rope burn, you know, something more that's a little bit unusual than just the typical, I fell off my bike and the story fits. It's something when you're listening to the story, you're saying, I don't think you could have gotten that injury in that way. Or this is the third time you've come in here. You know, the first time you had a head bleed, the second time you had, um, you know, a broken arm, and now you have this Kind of injury from a knife wound that just doesn't really add up. You drop the knife. uh, That doesn't really make much sense.
1: No one's that unlucky three times. Yeah, no
2: one's that unlucky three times. And it's often just the way that the patient is presenting the story. They may not have great eye contact. They may have Mm -hmm. somebody who is with them who seems maybe a little overbearing, tries to answer over them. You can kind of look at the way that they interact together and see that maybe there's an uncomfortable they feel uncomfortable about trying to explain the situation. And it's all those social cues. As humans, we're really good at picking up on social cues when something is a little bit off. And so it's listening to those, those pointers, those cues that are kind of ticking you off, that maybe something's off that you start to ask more questions about it. The other things are if um, work environments. So for example, in a lot of labor trafficking, they may work in environments where they're around chemicals or heavy machinery. There's a lot of protective gear that is often used in those occasions. If you suspect that they didn't have the proper protective gear or that there wasn't a great working condition, that should be something else that should prompt you to ask more questions about their work environment.
4: So I'm getting a sense of that. Human trafficking isn't necessarily your stereotypical understanding of someone is being moved from place to place in shackles. It can be as just as subtle as you have someone here working and they're forced to work because either they might be in debt, mm-hmm. their documentation were taken away from them, they're working in an environment that's hazardous. If that wasn't human trafficking, perhaps the of employment would have took into consideration their health. Mm-hmm. The fact that they're not, it's reasonable to think that those individuals are working under unwanted forced conditions. And that in itself is a form of human trafficking, even if it's not physically moving someone from A to B under these stereotypical, they have shackles on and so forth.
2: That's exactly right. And I think one of the biggest myth, uh, and I'm glad you brought it up today, is that trafficking does not mean you have to be moved across state lines, international borders, even city lines. You can be trafficked in the same city that you grew up in. So it's a perfect point. And there's a lot of talk now kind of among human trafficking advocates that if you notice when you Google human trafficking, often pictures of victims will come up in kind of these shackles or They'll have a barcode or different things like that that, you know, are very image-provoking. And some advocates are asking, is this really helping us? Because that's not what you see walking in the door. You know, they're not in shackles. And, you know, it's really sometimes these subtle cases where the stories don't quite add up, where you should be asking more questions about what the environment is like. Because it gets down to a lot of it, like you say, choice. Do they have a choice to leave? Do they have a choice coming into it? and that's not something that just strictly looking at someone's appearance is going to give you.
4: Just to add to that, within sort of the same city trafficking, I, I looked up and it seems that some of the most common causes of trafficking are promising of employment that's not know, f- fulfilled and to promise, debt, threat of violence towards their family, themselves, or somebody else that they care about, blackmail, as well as psychological manipulations, and less often than you think it's not physical abuse that is the main form although it is one form of human Mm -hmm. trafficking it's sort of these other elements that we don't really kind of think about and it's part of the reason why this issue is having a hard time being resolved in our society today
2: right because there's so many factors that can go into it and it's not always a violent relationship fear is a very big factor in people's decisions whether it's you know fear of being stable in the economy with their money whether it's their family members nobody wants their family or friends to be injured or have anything bad happen to them so if somebody's threatening your family that's a really big reason to stay in a situation that maybe is not real great for you but you feel like may benefit your family in some way even if it's small
3: um kind of in that same vein I know that I actually used to so i actually used to work with migrant farm workers in central washington um and i know that uh, oftentimes um in work or labor trafficking um undocumented immigrants happen to be the victims of that as you know their boss can tell them well we can you know inform on you to ice you'll Mm -hmm. get in trouble etc and obviously that's a huge fear um for them do you think that um kind of what's been going on in the like national um uh, immigration scale with you know people being deported for even you know women who are applying for u visas are being Mm -hmm. deported right now um do you think that's going to kind of stand in the way of is there any talk about how that's going to affect people you know coming forward with their stories about you know being trafficked or you know the ability to help people who are being trafficked.
2: Yeah, I think it's an interesting time because, as we kind of talked about already a little bit, immigration is, you know, tied as well to labor trafficking. Often, especially here mm-hmm. in the United States, their victims of labor trafficking, I think, are overrepresented by um, foreign nationals, and so it is, I think, a concern. There hasn't been a lot of research that comes out yet, um, and a lot of talk but I suspect that this is kind of one of the next big topics in human mm-hmm. trafficking kind of waiting to see what our immigration laws are going to be like because traditionally they are things like U visas and T visas which are more specific for victims of human trafficking that have kind of helped alleviate those um, so it's interesting I think a lot of victims of human trafficking don't even know about these visas a lot mm-hmm. of times so I'm not sure how much it will affect because um, yeah. I don't know if that's a part of their talk. It's definitely a part of our responsibility when we're talking to patients um, about how we present, what type of help we can bring them, and what that really means. And I think right now it's a little bit up in the air (laughs) about where that may go. Mm -hmm.
1: So kind of touching on this, um, you mentioned Informing patients of the resources that we do have for them um, or reasons like immigration that people fall victim to trafficking. What are some other red flags um, that we would be concerned about people becoming victims of human trafficking um, even domestically um, mm-hmm. with younger you know, girls and even boys? But um, those and then what are some kind of resources that we might be lacking to help pull people out of human trafficking?
2: That's a great question. So people who are at risk for human trafficking are uh, some of the biggest ones are for example people who have mental health problems, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and then if you look at other marginalized populations in the U.S. who maybe are in the foster care system um, are at significant risk uh, for becoming victims of human trafficking. Mostly because a lot of times they don't have great social support or the resources to um, meet all of their needs. And so they're very easily preyed upon by those that are trying to take advantage of them. Uh, And it becomes difficult with resources because, especially with, you know, boys and men, as you kind of alluded, because there are some good resources for women in most places that there's at least a domestic violence shelter where they can go. But a lot of times, men and boys are not allowed at those places, you know, depending on the age for boys. And so that can be a real big concern. Uh, Additionally, when you look at sex work, and this is beginning to change, thankfully, but um, even minors used to be charged with prostitution charges, (laughs) and that would be on their records. And so that would be difficult. And even, you know, there was talk, well, maybe this is a way to kind of get them in the system and get them resources. But this affects their Mm long-term opportunities to get job employment and you're already criminalizing them for the behavior and oftentimes they would be in the juvenile system which often comes with a whole another slew of issues Uh, so resources is definitely a difficult topic right now (laughs) trying to figure out how do we get them hooked up um in the community because they often will need um drug and alcohol treatments Mm -hmm. and support, mental health treatment and support. And without that, you're at risk of being re-victimized because some of those addictions are such a high pull Mm -hmm. that if you don't have some of those other social supports in place, that it puts the victim at a very high risk of being re-victimized. And a lot of times you need some job training and um, education to help you get into a stable work environment.
3: So I guess, I I don't know, you said in the past, is it still true that with sex work women or boys or whoever men will be charged with prostitution? Is that still true? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, in the US, uh, Mm -hmm. except for in places in Nevada, um, prostitution is illegal. And so you will get a criminal charge. Um, And it varies by whatever state you're in. Um, And there were used to be different you know, misdemeanor[s] felony charges. You'll have to forgive me because I don't know all the law enforcement terms, but it was different for men that were the Johns or women that were the Johns versus those that were under new prostitution charges. Or pr- prostitution charges, and, and so some states, that's different, where the penalty for selling sex was more than buying sex. Mm-hmm. And some states have tried to reduce that. Illinois recently, a couple of years ago, kind of reduced the charge of prostitution to be more equivalent to the charge of buying sex Mm -hmm. and so there's still disparities even within that all throughout the nation and a lot of um, human rights and advocacy groups are working on that in their own states trying to change legislation.
3: I remember reading about Sweden had, is it Sweden that had um, decriminalized like prostitution and then just complete started charging the johns i guess and Correct. they were seeing uh, better outcomes i think which is an interesting makes sense mm-hmm. but, um
1: i know a lot of law enforcement agencies are at least in bigger urban areas are becoming more familiar and trying to educate themselves with human mm-hmm. trafficking or trying to change the policies is that something that we do see only localized to, like urban centers where we would maybe associate human trafficking and is that leaving more of a problem like with rural areas, such as, like, Iowa, per se.
2: Sure. So it's it's hard to know what exactly is going on across the country because right now the movement of education on human trafficking is very local, kind of state-based. Uh, most likely in the bigger cities, there's just a lot more resources and people who are interested involved, so there is a bigger push, I think, in the cities. But there's a lot more people to reach as well, so... Mm-hmm. Um, here in Iowa, there are quite a few active groups who are working within human trafficking, and Johnson County is actually going to have their first human trafficking conference coming up uh, March 31st that will be dedicated to healthcare providers, law enforcement, and social, uh, social providers in the area. Davenport has also had similar um, conferences held, and so has the Des Moines area. So we are starting to see that. Cedar Rapids as well. Um, Some conferences kind of within Iowa that are working with law enforcement. And I think law enforcement on the whole has been really receptive to that in the areas. And we've had a number of prostitution sting operations. And gosh, I can't remember now. It's been at least several years that there was um, a factory uh, that had some human trafficking going on that law enforcement got involved. So we are seeing more activity and identifying victims of human trafficking here.
4: So while we're on topic here in Iowa, as an out-of-state student, I actually heard from an Iowa native that the largest truck stop in the U.S. is in Iowa, and Mm -hmm. that's actually one of the links in the chain of human
2: trafficking in the U.S. Is there any comments about that that you know? Yeah, so that is suspected. It's really hard to know what the actual statistics are on that. But Interstate 80 was a very large truck stop, um, and a lot of 80 intersects with a lot of major roads um, coming in and out of Iowa, and so they suspect that a lot of trafficking kind of goes through that area. One thing that is quite nice that um, has happened over the last several years is there is there's a Truckers Against um, Trafficking Coalition, mm-hmm. and so there's been a lot of education within uh, the Truckers Association in Iowa, the Iowa Truck Stop, they also have some awareness, um, like posters and things in the area. And I think that helps as well. So why I I do believe there's probably a lot of activity that comes through that area, I think they're also trying to educate um, specifically truckers and the workers in that area.
0: Can you, um, getting back to what MDs see, um, Mm -hmm. can you give us a is there any way you can share with us a specific example of something that you or a colleague saw that you might share with us? Just just give us an idea of how it looks.
2: Yeah, so I think the the way that it probably looks, and kind of looking back um, on different stories, uh, patient stories that people have told me, is it typically involves. Um, in our, I think we identify women and girls easier. I just think that's more on our radar. So that's most of the stories that I have heard have been with women. Um, Is that oftentimes they're coming in for um, a problem of either like a urinary tract or STD type of check Um, and usually they are with um, one instance was with um, a woman one was with another man and the situation is usually of somebody who is a little bit more overbearing kind of coming in Uh, they oftentimes don't have great follow-up or great resources they have histories of alcohol and drug abuse that are involved, or mental health issues. That's typically kind of what people have identified. And a, obviously those are things that put people at risk, and I think they're also things that are easier for us to identify, and so I'm not sure if that's why you know we just see that more often and pick it up. That's typically what we have seen come in. There's been a couple other cases where there's been um, immigrants who have come in with work-related issues and people have said oh i don't know if this is you know the best work environment and they came in with just kind of injuries related to work either um, lacerations or kind of some dermatitis like conditions that people have seen
0: if uh, if she, if you could pick one yeah. action or goal to achieve right now to help the efforts to curb trafficking in our state be it legislation education resources what would you, what would you want to have? Like if you made your wave, your magic, magic wand, what would you pick?
2: I'd have to say resources Yeah. just because I think that's the biggest need for victims of human trafficking. We're kind of on the ball right now with starting to get more education and awareness out. And so I think we're, we're doing a much better job of that where we're still really lacking is in resources.
0: I mean, money,
2: money, legislation, yeah. okay. <laughs> So, yeah, it's a tough question because it's all so intertwined. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard to get money and legislation until you have people who are involved, which takes awareness. Um, And kind of after all of those things have happened, then you get to resources. Mm -hmm.
4: (laughs) Yeah. So just circling back to what have you seen in the clinic, you you mentioned some of these questions that you might ask patients, such as Mm -hmm. about employment. Now, is there anything being done regarding just adding a couple of questions to that pre- uh, questionnaire. When a, when a patient comes in, I mean, they answer questions regarding anybody in your family have history of heart attack. How about, mm-hmm. are you currently happy with your employment? And if no or yes, follow-up questions that might start putting people in categories so that physicians can, because they are, like you said, they are exhausted on the amount of time they have, right. know whom to address, whom you know, not to address, just to sort of better allocate their resource, which is time.
2: It's a great question. So right now they're trying to work on some screening tools, so there's nothing validated. So a lot of times when we get these screening questions that we use, there's some sort of validation that shows that it actually helps or what questions to use. Right now, we're kind of in the process of trying to figure out, do we have any good screening tools to use? Um, and the work question is probably a nice one that we could maybe easily add in, and it would be interesting to see if that bears out to um, be a validated tool. Because with human trafficking, the reason that one of the reasons that it's been so hard to find a tool that's validated is because the groups of people who are affected are so broad. How do you reach mm-hmm. all those different groups? Um, when you look at you know sex trafficking and labor trafficking, and then men versus women, and you know teens and youth, children, all the way up to adults, and so it's a really broad group of people that has made it pretty difficult to figure out. Um, how to screen for it. One of the groups that I follow pretty heavily is called HEAL. It's um, Health Education Advocacy Linkage Group, and they're currently working on some tools trying to figure out how do we address that issue of screening and protocols.
0: What brought you, so back in the day, what brought you to this interest? Because I think, if I remember correctly, I think this was something that you were interested in understanding back when you were still in med school, right?
2: yeah and so it started before med school so before med school i worked in japan teaching english and just having fun really and so i did a lot of traveling in asia Um, and when i was traveling is when i first became aware of the issue of human trafficking more specifically at that time sex trafficking thailand's well known for the sex industry Um, and as i was traveling through there it was very apparent that it was happening and then even traveling through Um, You know Laos and Cambodia you would sometimes see big billboard signs that would say don't take young girls out of the country Something along to that effect of a message. So I started reading just more about it um, And became really interested in what was going on because I I just you know couldn't believe you know slavery and all of these issues They ended so long ago, right? Mm -hmm, Like that's mm -hmm. what you were taught Um, and I hadn't really thought about it until then and so when I got into medical school and decided to kind of go down that career path, I was wondering, well, is it happening in the U.S.? You know, what does it look like? There's all these movies of Taken and different things where people are abducted, which does happen, um, but that's missing a whole another huge large part of the group. And so that's when I became interested here in the U.S. to see what does it look like, how's it happening. At that time when I was, um, you know, a first-year medical student, nobody was really talking about human trafficking very much uh, w- especially within the medical community and I would, would reach out and ask different attendees and staff do you know anything about this is this happening here and they tell me no it's not happening here like that only happens in the big cities and we're learning how wrong we are about that.
4: So according to do org, the global cost for a human slave is 90 US dollars. Wow. So you can get yourself a new iPhone or participate in one of today's tragedies Mm. for nine dollars wow
1: and i think hearing stories like yours about just once you're exposed and it kind of like shatters that image of Mm -hmm. thinking this is no longer a problem like especially people like our listeners a lot of them are pre-meds and who feel that inherent call to help people and to do something and we're very type a we like to have plans and make changes um and then you know i've read some books and it just kind of the magnitude of the problem and the lack of resources and things, it's almost kind of crippling or paralyzing when you think about, well, I don't even know where to start and what to do. So maybe for some of our listeners who are interested in kind of getting more educated and involved in advocacy for human trafficking, what are some good stepping stones, would you say?
2: So I think some good stepping stones are Just getting on some different media that follows stories of human trafficking. So Polaris Project, they send out, you know, weekly, monthly emails, kind of give updates on what's going out in the community or other groups like HEAL, um, which is the health education advocacy linkage group. If you can get a part of some of those groups that are following it, you can kind of see where the issues are going and how to get involved in your communities. There are a lot more communities doing work, and so you'll hear um, different conferences that are going on. Here in Iowa City, we've had several. Uh, one of the problems is is that as a, as a group, we're not always very well connected. And even, I you know, I'm, feel like I'm very active in the area, and I'll hear, oh, next week some group is, you know, talking about human trafficking. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, I didn't yeah. know anything about it, and.
0: Um, well, there's so many different, seems like there's so many different groups that can Affect this from you know whether it's MDS or law mm-hmm. enforcement or law enforcement members or right. advocacy groups or you know creating a cohesive network must be really uh, dif- a really big problem.
2: Which is tough, you know, and I'm always excited to hear that people are at least talking about it and educating about it. And um, one of the things that the Johnson County Human Trafficking Conference is hoping to help is try to make some of those networks so that we're a little bit more connected on this issue. Mm-hmm and integrated so we're all working together and not separately trying to do the same thing because uh, that doesn't necessarily I mean it's always good for education but I think we can have a bigger impact if we're working you know all together instead of separately trying to do things
3: you capitalize on each other's strengths right, and exactly. the resources that they exactly. may have which can you know be kind of hard in social services cuz oftentimes groups are fighting for the same grants or and mm-hmm. it's kind of counterproductive for the whole end goal of what everyone's trying to do. Right. Other
2: ways that people can get involved that I think are important as you especially go through your medical careers, there are so many different associations, you know, the big medical association groups, and then each specialty has their own um, associated groups that you can be a part of. You can get active within those groups about kind of the education and policy affecting them. And so that's one way that I've started to get involved through education, for example, with emergency medicine, There are even residence groups, you know, EMRA, which is the Emergency Mm -hmm. Medicine Residency Association, through their group, where we have put together like a new goal of bringing education to the residents, having more of like a human trafficking kind of campaign that will go out. And so that's another way that you can get involved is education within whatever groups that you're involved with.
1: That's great, because even now, I mean, Tarek and I are first year students, and we've had I think quite a bit more exposure than I thought to lectures on trauma-informed care and Mm -hmm. like recognizing child abuse and those sorts of things. But we have not yet heard about human trafficking um, issues in the larger setting of the course, aside from your talk Mm -hmm. that was sponsored by um, the global health track. So,
2: And don't worry. In your second year, you're going to get a lecture now. So just starting last year, I started to give a lecture on human trafficking. So I think that's been a great way to bring it to um, medical students. And I've done some other talk within different departments within the hospital as well, because we just didn't hear about it. We never learned about it. And until you know that it's a problem, you can't really identify it.
0: So the challenge for people, for doctors who aren't EM docs Mm -hmm. is probably different, um, at least in terms of, you know, what they can, what they can do or what they can look for. I mean, are there things that you can tell other kinds of doctors um, to keep an eye on? I mean, is it the same things? Is it? Because a family medicine doctor mm. doesn't see people in the same way that an emergency medicine doctor sees people.
2: Yeah, it's true. You're still looking for the same things.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and sometimes, you know, victims of human trafficking, they do have primary care docs that they follow up with. Um, mm. They may be in the foster care system mm. and they have doctors that they, you know, follow with. There's been numerous stories that I've heard of, of especially, you know, young female in their high school years who are victims of you know, sex trafficking and they go to school. (laughs) Yeah. And they just end up in these really poor situations.
0: So that's another reason to, you know, keep your, keep one, keep one's mind open, um, to this problem because, Mm -hmm. you know, not, not just assume that it's a certain type of person or a certain, you know, type of trafficking or Mm -hmm. a certain type of, you know, business. Um, Unless you guys have questions more about human trafficking, I want to take advantage of the fact that we have a uh, CECOM, former CECOM student sitting in the chair, yeah. and uh, and talk about um, and talk about residency because match day is around the corner.
2: It is woo, and this
0: is a very exciting time. Next week for for uh, our uninitiated listeners, next week is match week, and this is the week that in the beginning of the week you find out uh, whether you matched. And at the end of the week, you find out where you matched mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it's a, it's a big, it's a big deal. So while we're at this point, um, tell us a little bit about what it was like to get that news. Did you, was it the news that you wanted? I mean, clearly emergency medicine is what you wanted to do. Yes. Um, and was being here what you wanted? being here like what what a stupid question because she's gonna be like no not really (laughs) yeah (laughs) no i wanted to be at another place
2: (laughs) your attendings don't listen to this podcast (laughs) sorry
0: i don't always ask the smartest questions but
2: no no it's okay it's one that i talk about quite a bit when we interview applicants that are you know coming um and coming to look at our program here so you know match week is a very stressful week getting that email that first day on monday is just like i mean you're, you're almost positive that you've matched somewhere, but there's that small the little doubt, voice. the little voice that you are that one person. Yeah. Um, and it is becoming more competitive in a lot of different specialties. So it is a real fear. You know, even sometimes great applicants, for whatever reason, don't match, whether it's because they don't have, uh, you know, didn't put enough on their match list or had other reasons, you know, there's usually some sort of reason, but... It's very stressful, and yeah. then you have to wait the whole week to find out where you're going, which is equally the stressful for the whole week. The whole week. But why is
1: it laid out like that? I
2: have no idea. I think it's.
0: I think it's like. I, I'm not it's entirely dope, sure. Right? I think it's because there is a period in the middle where people who didn't match. Oh
2: yes, the scramble. Oh, can yeah. go soap. through. Well, they call it soap, soap now. Yeah. Soap. <laughs>
0: um, with supplemental offer and it, something program but but uh, basically it's the opportunity to um, go basically all the people who didn't match essentially go through a second match Yeah and try to you know get into a program so they have to have they have to make time to do that and then yeah and then everybody finds out
3: I'm taking advanced anatomy with a bunch of m4s right now and so it's basically the only thing we talk about in yeah. lab is like <laughs> oh, how nervous they are about matching and I'm like yeah that. Someone is explaining me, explain to me the details of the soap, and I was like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> like-
1: See, I didn't realize that they didn't find out until Monday. I thought they knew much sooner if they didn't match, because mm-hmm. I'm under the impression, like, parents will come, so there are, like, travel plans laid out. And there were t-shirts in the yeah. M4 mailboxes, yeah. I was like, wow, they go all out, but would suck to have a T-shirt and no match.
4: I have to be honest. I don't exactly understand how residency matching even works because I haven't <laughs> looked into it. It's a it's, it's a disgusting <laughs>
1: algorithm. <laughs> so no, that's not what I mean.
4: I mean what you do as a student. So you interview at places. You interview, mm-hmm. and then first you hear that you got the, your discipline, but you don't know which one of the ones that you interviewed at was the one that accepted you. Just that you got your discipline. Is that how? Is that what you mean by?
2: Yeah, so the way that the match works, as um, a student, you apply to numerous programs. It can depend on what specialty you're going in, how many interviews you actually need. Um, So I can talk to emergency medicine because that's where I come from. Do it. But uh, you need, a lot of people will interview around 10 to 15 different locations all around the country. So it's very time and money, um, (laughs) expensive and resource rich in that area. As the applicant, you will then make a rank list and you will rank all of the places that you went in order of where you want to go.
4: You rank before or after your interviews?
2: You rank after the your interview interviews. After. So you interview at all the different places and then you make a rank list. Uh, and the places that you interviewed, they also make a rank list of, you know, 100 to 200 people and you fall somewhere in that. And then some magical computer somehow <laughs> matches. <laughs> the rank list of the student with the rank list of the program and you end up there it's also further complicated by people who who want to couples match Mm -hmm. which is also a thing Mm -hmm. and that's even more magical and mysterious (laughs) how that happens magical because they're couples yeah exactly (laughs) no that's nice (laughs) nice. yeah (laughs) and how that works because they each have their own kind of rank list and then the different programs because they're usually couples matching most often different types of specialties. <laughs> do you so, find
1: that the, oh sorry. No, Dave, no, no, go ahead. Do you find that the list kind of what people might have a kind of a preconceived notion of where they'd like to match before they start interviewing? Mm-hmm. Did yours change a lot at all or do a lot of students change kind of after the interviewing um, to get a better idea of where they'd like to do residency?
2: I think uh, what they have found is that where people rank is what the type of location, geography, where they want to be is kind of the biggest influencing factor. And then, there, of course, sometimes you fall in love with a program for whatever reason, or there may be a big draw because that program does research in a particular area, or they have a typical you know, global health track or EMS track or, you know, whatever that mm-hmm. may be that might draw you to that program. Um and so it's really highly dependent upon that. Um, Iowa students have, in the, in the history, done really well in the match and gotten, usually within their cop, top couple choices. Usually, yeah. and so we've done well.
4: That's reassuring.
0: So, um, so during uh, the the, the I, I just wanted to say, if you're really interested in figure in finding out more about the match and how it works, it's a really interesting uh, problem that they faced, and there was a uh, there the guy who came up with the algorithm actually won a Nobel Prize in Economics for his. Uh, match algorithm because it's a really complicated problem that is I mean it's not possible to solve it perfectly I mean the good news is that the algorithm gives preference to mm-hmm. the medical students choice It used to be apparently it used to be the other way around to give preference to the uh, the residency programs choice and then medical students revolted I guess and, and so, as they do medical Naturally. Students, sometimes medical students revolt and uh, and so it was flipped So that uh, there is. But the point is to, they call it the stable marriage problem. The point is to link you, Mm -hmm. link you with your ideal program and vice versa. That is the point. It's like sororities. Is it, is it perfect? (laughs) Well, maybe not. But I think in the vast majority of cases, it actually does
4: work out.
1: I don't believe in stable marriages. No, you. That I, I <laughs> wouldn't, uh, wouldn't
0: surprise me.
4: So, as a person who wants to have a stable marriage, how can I get access to that algorithm to test some personal <laughs> factors? I, 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 don't, I don't know.
0: I'm sure you could. I'm sure you could look up the stable marriage problem, and that would, and that would give you the algorithm i, I feel mm-hmm. like it would be a rather uncomfortable thing to apply to your personal lives but <laughs> yeah. i
1: whatever. hope they put it in favor of your future spouse
2: and not you yeah. so
0: what was what was your <laughs> what was your um experience like starting your residency
2: so residency i would say and as i was saying to kylie earlier i think every year gets better and better um And so residency is a time of high stress because all of a sudden as a fourth year medical student, which is great, just revel in it because you're still a student and everybody expects you to kind of know what's going on, but you're a student. You don't really have to know what's going on. And then all of a sudden when you become a resident your first year, you are now a doctor and now patients really expect you to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And you're like, yesterday I was just an M4. Today, now I'm a resident and a doctor. And it's a really big jump. So there's a lot of kind of (laughs) stress thankfully those in the medical world around the hospital they know the interns and they will help you kind of through your first year of residency Um, but it's a big learning curve because not only are you learning medicine you're learning the medical system that you're working in just you know how to put orders in how to find orders how to find the equipment where the bathroom is in the hospital if it's not where you went to medical school (laughs) Can yeah. be a big stress yeah. you know where do I get that cup of coffee at 2 a.m. in the morning yep. is really important to figure out just to keep your life going um, but you know I've been very fortunate at Iowa you kind of asked earlier you know did I choose Iowa you know what was you know kind of where that where that was in the lineup and I did choose Iowa because overall Iowa is a really friendly supportive hospital even within the hospital different departments get along pretty well it's a nice place to work and within the emergency department i have a lot of really great mentors Mm -hmm. who have actually really helped me in this area of human trafficking where i have a passion to kind of excel um, and given me opportunities to meet and network with people and so that was a really big draw for me here in iowa is that i knew i'd be really well supported in my goals and that the environment here was also very conducive to kind of your well-being and wellness which is another huge topic in medicine Um, uh, how to be happy and healthy as physicians in our high stress environment and so I thought Iowa would provide that for me and it has overall it's been a really good um, environment and been really important in that adjustment going from a medical student through residency um, up to you know nearly graduating and being at that next step where you have the confidence to handle medical problems and ready to go out on your own which is also terrifying still but at least you feel like you have all the tools to do it.
1: Yeah, when do you graduate residency?
2: <laughs> so we uh, are done July 30th. So you last feel day. Ready? I do feel ready, but I'm still terrified and I think that's as you talk to other physicians even now there are times where they still feel terrified because medicine is not the cookbook. You know, this is what heart failure is. This is what, uh, you know, a heart attack is and how to differentiate that in the book is very easy. But when you see a patient in the emergency room or in your office, the medical problems are not that easy always to solve. Mm -hmm. And so you still have challenges. And then even still, you know, medicine is always changing with the way that we test things. And what we thought was true we find out isn't true and then you have other epidemics like Ebola and Zika that come into play that you know you didn't really learn about in medical school and now you're quickly trying to get up to speed about what's going on on the latest breaking news because your patients are definitely going to be worried and concerned about it and expect you to know
0: (laughs) do you brought it up do you have any idea other than you know getting into the right place and Mm -hmm. getting yourself into the right environment do you have any additional advice on how to maintain your sanity during intern year?
2: Yeah, so sleep is really important. I think sleep is probably one of the best things you can do for yourself. Because that would
0: destroy me if I was a if I was a first year resident because I don't sleep very well. So
2: yeah, and I you know truthfully we all struggle with it. Yeah. Um, I was up late last night and coming in, so I'm also a little sleep-deprived today. So I here I am saying, you know, sleep, sleep, and I'm I have not- have some l-
1: caffeine pills you know, if you want
2: Exactly, them. right? <laughs> I live on caffeine. Uh, but sleep is really important. And I think it becomes even more important when you feel yourself kind of getting to that breaking point where you're feeling a little bit more overstressed, overworked, and things are you know, getting to you a little more easily, you feel a little more irritable than your normal self. At that time, you, re- you need to recognize that, hey, I really need to get some sleep and make sure I'm focusing on myself a little bit that I can push some other stuff off, get some sleep. That um, you eat well, which is also really challenging in the hospital environment because when it's 2 a.m. in the morning, the chicken strips look really great and you may not even though they're hours old even though they're hours old (laughs) and they still taste great um, way better than the grapes that are over there you're like yeah no i'm gonna go for the chicken strips and the onion rings Um, so trying to make those choices the other thing i think that's really important is your family and friends support or whatever social networks that you have that you still make time and you often need to schedule it (laughs) which sounds terrible kind of removes the spontaneity but if you don't schedule it, it'll it get lost yeah. um, and your time will get eaten up by other things because in residency and throughout the rest of your medical career there will always be a list of things to do there will always be people asking you to get involved and to do more things you have to learn to say no yeah. and you have to put the things that are important into your life onto your calendar because otherwise your free day will soon get eaten up because you're like oh yeah I have, you know, this 24 hour period off and I can do this, this and this. And pretty soon you realize that you haven't left any time for yourself, for those that are in your life who are important to you. You haven't left any time to work out if Mm -hmm. that's important to you or your music or going to the movies, whatever is your thing, you need to make time for it. Yes, (laughs) I always say that. Yeah. <laughs> I was
0: pointing at I was pointing at uh, Kylie because uh, Kylie just got sucked into directing uh, Frolics this year so.
1: I I walked into a room looking for someone to play volleyball with me yesterday and I walked out with like a director position for the It happens.
4: It happens. Kids, so. I yeah. heard you were petitioning for it. Shut <laughs> up, sorry. <laughs> I I heard that you were like anyone who decides to do this I will just trample them and just rip yeah. the position out of their hands. And I heard
1: you were crying in the bathroom alone after you heard that it it was Sam and I. Wow. Video. Because
4: I'm worried about the results. There you As couldn't usual. Have finished <laughs> I am worried about what would happen. As usual,
0: Kylie and Tarek, get involved. Get into it. Not involved. No. That's not what I meant. <laughs> get into it on the show. <laughs> well, listen, uh, that's our show. Uh, Dr. Finley, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to hang out with us and talk to us both about human trafficking and what physicians can do and also about your uh, residency uh, experiences. Uh, really appreciate having you back. It's great to see you.
2: Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been fun. And thanks, thanks. to you,
0: Kylie, Tarek, and Corbin, for being my co-hosts this week. woo Thank you. Uh, thank you, listeners, for making us a part of your week. Aside from our show, we doubt you have other internets you could bother enjoying, but we're glad you chose us. If you like what you heard today, consider sharing us with your colleagues. If you have a suggestion for something we should talk about, send it to the at gmail.com. Or leave us a message at 347 short TT and like us on our Facebook page where we often do shows on Facebook live like we did today so that you can join us in making the world of medical school a better place. We'll talk to you in one week.